you to turn in your Bible to the book of Daniel chapter number 3. Daniel chapter number 3 this morning, and I'd like to begin reading in verse number 15. Daniel chapter number 3, verse number 15. God bless you. I'm so thankful that the Lord has led you to Fairhaven Baptist College and high school. And uh, I'm grateful and thankful for God's leading in your life. And if I could encourage you just to keep on abounding in the work of the Lord. You know, nobody ever came to the end of the race who lived for the will of God. Nobody ever. They ever came to the end who said, I did what God wanted me to do with my life. Now, if I could go back and do it again, I'd do something else. You know, nobody's ever said that in like the history of the whole world. But do you know how many people there are? And I, I mean, your brother Mitch couldn't even tell you how many he's going to, he has talked to, and I promise he will talk to, who come to the end of their race and said, you know, if I could go back, I remember when God spoke to my heart. I remember when I was at camp and God was dealing with me. And, and if only I could go back and do it again, there'd be different choices. You know, I'm not a golfer. I'm not a good enough Christian to be a golfer. <laughs> not only that, preachers cheat. Man, they just cheat big time at golf. So it's not for me. But, but anyway, uh, I'm not a golfer, but I understand on the golf course they have a mulligan. And if you don't like the shot, you get to try it again. That may work on the golf course, but that doesn't work when it comes to life. C.T. Studd was a, a, a professional athlete. Well, I, I don't know if you want to call it an athlete. He was in England, and he played cricket. <laughs> so in America, we have all American football players. In England, they had all English cricketers. Kind of says everything you need to know, but he was good at it. He was a professional, had a great career in front of him, and he, he gave it all up to go to the mission field. And, of course, they laughed at him, and they said, you're crazy. And, after all, can't you reach more young people as a professional athlete? But it was C.T. Studd near the end of his life that wrote, only one life, it'll soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And, and that's not the whole thing. There's an amazing poem that goes along with that. It's incredibly powerful. And I, I'd encourage you to look at that and, and, and check it out and, and why it's an important thing to realize. Nobody has ever lived for Christ who said, I wish I could do it again. I'd do it different. But there have been multitudes of people that had that one opportunity that sits in front of you right now. And they said, my choice, not God's. And my, how they regret that to the end of their life. What a chance we have. Just one life. Only what we do for Christ is going to count for eternity. You have your Bible to the book of Daniel, chapter number 3. And, and of course, you know the story. King Nebuchadnezzar, the emperor of the world in his day, this mighty despot has decided to build an altar, an idol to his religion. Almost 100 feet tall, and, and though it is highly offensive to the liberal seminary professors, the Bible says that it was made of gold, not overlaid with gold, not crusted with gold. It was gold. What an incredible thing it must have been. And now in the plains of Dura, and the plains of Dura really are not all that far from a place called Babel. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar could have checked how that turned out. And, and in the plains of Dura, he's built this magnificent idol to his God. And, and of course, the day comes where anybody who's anybody shows up for the dedication ceremony. Law enforcement is there. The military is there. The political world is there. If you're somebody, you are there. And of course, the praise band begins to play. As the praise band plays, everyone is instructed to bow down. And, and you know, this wasn't sitting at the restaurant giving it one of these before you eat. This would have been lying prostrate like a Muslim would do on a Friday afternoon and, and putting your forehead straight on the ground. It is not like these boys are thinking maybe they won't notice. The boys understand there is no way they won't see. 
And of course, with everybody lying prostrate and and the praise band playing screeching, ear-shattering music, the boys are standing straight and tall. And and they asked me last night to make sure, not really, but they want us to get their names right. Could we do this? I mean, a Bible college, couldn't we get this right? Their names are Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are pagan names. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah honor Jehovah. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego under pagan idols. The boys would certainly appreciate it if we got it right. After all, we don't go around talking about Belteshazzar in the den of lions, so we could get this. And those three boys know exactly what to do, and as the praise band plays, they stand up straight and tall with backbone and courage. And the next thing you know, they're dragged into the presence of the king. And in verse number 15... Now, if ye be ready, that at what time ye hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, and dulcimer, and, and all kinds of music, ye fall down and worship the image which I have made well. But if ye worship not, ye shall be cast the same hour into the midst of a burning, fiery vertice. And right here, the whole chapter changes. Up until this point, it was Nebuchadnezzar Versus Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, no more. With the next words in your Bible, the tenor of the chapter changes. The purpose of the chapter changes. Everything is different. When arrogant Nebuchadnezzar asked this question, and who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? So for the rest of the chapter, God's going to answer that question. He's going to find out exactly who this God is that can deliver them out of his hand. Well, in all of the Bible, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they get to speak one time. And, and, you know, we don't even know who does the talking in verse number 17. But one of them talks, and and if you get to talk one time in the Bible, you're quoted one time in the Word of God. I got to tell you, I don't know if you could ever do better than this. There is hitting a grand slam, and then there is this. And the Bible says, if it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of thy hand, O king. But this is the classic part, but if not. You see, this is where the modern ministers and and the houses of religion uh, with their prosperity gospel, God wants you happy and healthy and wealthy and blessed. This is where they get it all wrong because those boys say, we know that our God is more than able to deliver us out of the burning fiery furnace. But they say, if not, in other words, if we go into that fire and we fry like bacon, but if not, be it known unto the O king that we will not serve thy gods nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. It doesn't matter if we are blessed. It doesn't matter if we are wealthy, healthy, and prosperous. It doesn't ha- matter if in 2,500 years at Fairhaven Baptist College, they're still preaching about us because whether we're somebodies or nobodies, whether we live or whether we die, whether we walk out of that furnace or we die in the middle of it, nothing changes. We are not going to bow down to your idol and we're not going to worship your God. Well, in verse number 19, Then was Nebuchadnezzar full of fury, and the form of his visage was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I mean, this verse, you can can almost just put your hands out and feel the fire. You just almost feel the temperature rising. Therefore, he spake and commanded that they should heat the furnace one seven times more than it was wont to be heated. 
Father, help us as we come to the mighty word of God. I pray you would challenge every man, every lady in this place today. May we join those three men and say our lives for the will of God. Whether we live or whether we die, nothing matters more than what God wants me to do. I pray your word would do what it does so well and break up the fallow ground in our lives. Convict us and make us. We come in the great name of Jesus. Amen. One seven times more. I mean, the bellows, they must have been squeezing them together. And you can almost, even in your mind today, see the billowing clouds of black smoke as they just rise towards the heavens. I mean, you can almost see the fires that are leaping out of this furnace. And, and it must have been a massive furnace. I, I, I guess that it was the smelting furnace they used to melt the gold. And you can almost see that it was so large, four people could walk around in it. And you can almost imagine it would have been made of adobe and it must have been red. And the fires and the flames are leaping out the top and smoke is going everywhere as it reaches to the skies. Seven times hotter than it was supposed to be heated because of the fury of the king. The Bible tells us in verse number 20 that an angry king, Nebuchadnezzar, is about ready to make some silly and serious mistakes. You know, angry men do stupid things. And Nebuchadnezzar, for his fury and his anger that is written all over his face, Nebuchadnezzar is going to pay a tremendous price. In verse number 20, he commanded the most mighty men that were in his army. Well, there's no reason to do that. I mean, your lowest buck private could take those boys and throw them into the fire. Hey, a little child could lead them. They're not going anywhere. But no, because he is angry, you can almost see this king in his fury. And he's as hot as he can be. He says, just get that fire as hot as it goes. Get my mightiest soldiers here. And the Bible says that they were to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Notice that word bind. You know, for you and for me, when we sit at a computer and we do some writing, well, we can write a paragraph and it's awfully easy to make emphasis. I mean, today you sit at a computer and why oh, you can make some words bold. You can put some words in italics. You could underline them, change the font, change the font size, change the color, and do any or all of the above. And you can't do any of that when you're writing on an animal skin or on a papyrus leaf. So when you come to the Bible and you see a point that is emphasized more than once, it's pretty much the Lord's way of making it bold. It's the Lord's way of putting it in italics. It's the Lord's way of saying, hey, don't, don't miss this. And you'll notice that little word in verse number 20, uh, 20, that word bind. They bound Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. God is going to take the camera of the Bible and focus in on those ropes that are around the wrist of those boys and perhaps even around their ankles. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are bound because they're to be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. So in verse number 21, and it's fascinating what God puts our attention on now. Then these men were bound, there it is again, in their coats. That would be their outer garments, their hosen, their inner clothes, and, and then their hats, probably turbans, and their other garments, and they were cast into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. So it's unusual, isn't it? I mentioned last night preaching on Calvary that, that there are not a lot of perks when you're an executioner. But in Bible times, and it would be true even here, the one perk they had is that the executioners got the clothes of the victims. Not this time. The king is so angry and he is such a rage. I mean, the point is those boys are going to die and they are going to die right now. They are going to die not just in a furnace. They're going to die in a burning, fiery furnace seven times hotter. 
So there was no time to take their hats and there was no time to take their robes and no time it would seem to take the sandals off of their feet. These boys are being taken by that angry king and the best soldiers are going to throw them into the burning fiery furnace. Uh, Usually they would be stripped of their clothing, but not this time. They are tossed into that fire with their hats down to their shoes and sandals because in verse number 22, the king's commandment was urgent. You know, we already know it was severe, but now the Bible calls it urgent. These boys have to die a horrible death, and they have to die right now. And because the furnace was exceeding hot, the flame of the fire slew those men that took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Well, you can see as they get a little too close, and as the best of the soldiers are throwing those boys into the fire, the flames just jump right out of the furnace, and they grab the clothes or the bodies, and... And in an instant, these soldiers die a horrific death. What a story. The king's rage is costing him a lot now. And in verse number 23, for the third time, the Bible puts the attention on the shackles. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down bound into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. What a moment in the word of God. I mean, this king is so full of anger and fury and rage and it's just written all over him. How dare you defy me? How dare you defy my idol and my God? And and, and you know, there's one thing about Nebuchadnezzar. It just was a lifetime issue for him. He certainly was a man that was just loaded with arrogance. I mean, it all comes to a head a chapter later in chapter number four. We're somewhere near the end of his life. And and it really is one of the greatest soul winning stories in the Bible, Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. When Daniel's a teenager, 13, 14 maybe, he, he gets his first opportunity to meet Nebuchadnezzar. There he is witnessing to him in one, in chapter two. And, and now at the end of Nebuchadnezzar's life, he, you know, we come to the last account and, and it's almost through the pages of the Bible. He, you could just see the arrogance all over this king as he says am not I great Nebuchadnezzar this is my great empire that I have built by my power and and of course the Lord strikes him with insanity for seven years and now seven years later I I think he got saved I really think he did and it's an amazing story of God breaking the hard pride of Nebuchadnezzar and it had a lot to do with Daniel's burden and Daniel wouldn't quit on Nebuchadnezzar well we we haven't gotten to chapter 4 yet so by the time we look to verse number 23 we have an angry king a furious king we have an arrogant king and yet we have a king that has done one very foolish thing He has challenged Almighty God. There is no God alive that can stop me. Well, in verse 24, Nebuchadnezzar decides to take a look inside the fire. Evidently, the fire had cooled a little bit from seven times hotter, maybe to normal. And and as there would be a big opening on the top, and we know the boys were thrown down into that opening, there would be a door on the side where they would shovel in the fuel. In this case, they probably used charcoal. And and so now here is Nebuchadnezzar. You know, you can almost see him in his fury walking back and forth. And and the only thing redder than that furnace was his face. He is furious. He says, I'm just going to go take a look in that furnace. And I'm going to find a bone or I'm going to find a tooth and I'm going to hang it on the wall. And anyone that defies me, that is what happens to you. You know, I mentioned the other day about the look on their faces. Well, we got a real good one here, don't we? And the Bible word in verse 24 is that Nebuchadnezzar the king, and notice this word in your Bible, astonied. 
I used to read that and say, well, you know, that's like, you know, 400 years ago, probably how they spelled astonished. That's what I used to think, and it's not exactly right. Uh, there is a different word. Astonied is not exactly the same word as astonished, and it's not now, and it wasn't back then in 1611, and, and yet they are very, very similar, as you might guess, but the word astonied more or less was astonished on steroids. I mean, this guy was really astonished. And the Bible says Nebuchadnezzar the king was astonished. Wouldn't that be a classic look on his face? Oh, what in the world? And he looks inside that fire, and he rose up in haste, spake and said unto his counselors, Did not we cast three men, and here's that word again, bound into the midst of the fire? Well, of course. There were plenty of witnesses, so they answered and said unto the king, True, O king. He answered and said, And what do you know? There's that Bible word showing up again. Lo. You're not going to believe what happens now. Fasten your seatbelt. Here it goes. Because the Bible says, lo, I see four men loose. Four times the Bible says they're bound, they're bound, they're bound, they're bound. The shackles are around their wrists, the shackles are around their waist. And when you get to the end of the chapter, you know, the boys come out of the fire and their clothing isn't burned. Not a hair on their body is singed. I mean, they smell their clothes and you can't even smell the smoke. But to say that nothing was burned up in that fire would be a huge error, wouldn't it? Because there was one thing that was burned right away and that was the shackles around their hands, maybe their feet. The boys are loosed. And it's not just that they are loosed, but the Bible says they're walking. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, they're not running around in panic, and they are not flying in the air like ghosts. The Bible says there are four men, and they're walking. And we think, man, this is great. You know, the only thing burned was the shackles, and these guys aren't screaming and yelling in pain and in fear, and, and they're not running around in circles and pounding the door and looking for a way out, and they're not asking anybody for help. They are just calmly walking around, and when you think it just can't get any better, well, you know the story, and of course it does get better. Because the Bible tells us, he answered and said, Lo, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt. And then the Bible says, and the form of the fourth is like. And that all depends on which Bible you have. Oh, no, no, no. This is why this stuff really matters. It really all depends on which Bible you have. Now, if you have the Bible that comes from the World Council of Churches or the stepchild of the Bible that comes from the World Council of Churches, because that's where they all come from, if you have one of those English versions of the Bible that come from the world, you know, the World Council of Churches where the scholars, they wonder, did Isaiah write Isaiah? And the scholars, they wonder, you know, who actually wrote Daniel and was it 600 years later or 700 years later? And the scholars, you know, they have this theory of, oh, certainly Moses didn't write Genesis. And, and the scholars that debate and argue Jesus isn't the virgin born son of God, Jesus never preached, Jesus never wrote from the dead and, and the real hero of the New Testament is either A, Mary Magdalene, or B, Judas. Pick your choice. Now, these are the people that run places like Harvard Divinity School. These are the scholars and the experts for the World Council of Churches that give us our modern Bibles. And so the scholars come along, and if you're going to read one of the books that has been penned by the liberal scholars who don't believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, then you're going to see something very, very different 
from what the Bible tells us that came from the New Testament churches, 1 Timothy 3.15. Very, very different. Because the Bible of the World Council of Churches that goes all the way back to those wonderful seminarians and scholars in Alexandria, Egypt, their Bible tells us that the form of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Really? It's, I don't know, does it really make that big of a difference? If you're Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, brother, it makes a real big difference, I can tell you that. And so here come these scholarly intellects. They're so much smarter than us. They're so much higher than us. They're on a different level than we are. And they come along and they say, well, now, how in the world could a pagan king like Nebuchadnezzar recognize the Son of God? Well, I'll get to that in a minute. That's easy. But, you know, I have a question because we never get to question them. They all come with all scholarly questions. Yeah, well, I have a question for them. How would he know what a son of the gods looks like? You know, because everybody knows where that idol came from. There's that big smelting furnace to prove it. That idol's of gold. They could have been a brass stone, wood, who knows what, but this one's of gold. And everybody knows that that idol is not alive. Everybody knows that that idol is made of gold. And, and you know, I know this is real deep for the scholars in the seminary classes, but I'll just throw it out there anyhow. Idols of gold don't have children. No, they just don't have children. So to somehow think that that idol could have a son, you know, that is beyond bizarre. But you know what makes it all the more ridiculous? Do you know what these liberal cemetery pro seminary professors are? Do you know what they want us to believe? Seriously, do you know what they want us to think? They want us to think those boys are in that fire because they have embarrassed the king and because they have disgraced the idol. That's why they're in the fire, right? So now, they have been thrown in the fire for disgracing the idol. These people want us to believe that the very God that was disgraced decided to send his son to deliver them. You know, forget every other issue. Anyone that would even come up with that, you know, try, try decaf. What can I tell you? Try something else here. You talk about bizarre. It is illogical, it is unbiblical, and could I say you have to twist the text to say it? Everything is wrong with that. So here comes the so much smarter than us, the super intellectual, scholarly professors. And Well, how would a pagan like Nebuchadnezzar know that was the son of God? And the answer to that is very simple. Daniel told him. And I don't just throw that out there. There's reasons to know that Daniel told them because everywhere you turn in the book of Daniel, Daniel is witnessing to people. I mean, in Daniel chapter 2, do you know who he witnesses to? Nebuchadnezzar. In Daniel chapter 4, he does it again. In Daniel chapter 1, he's witnessing to Nebuchadnezzar's workers. In Daniel chapter 5, he's going after Belshazzar. In Daniel chapter 6, is King Darius. And the last thing that God tells us about Daniel's life is that he spent his life Turning people to righteousness. Please don't misunderstand this. That doesn't mean that Daniel walked around pointing his finger at people saying, do right, do right, do right. No, 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 no. When it says he turned them to righteousness, he was turning them to the righteousness of Christ. 
You see, Abraham, Noah, David, pick your Old Testament hero. Do you know the reason they're in heaven today? Is because the righteousness of Christ was placed on their account. The righteousness of Christ was imputed to them. Because as a sinner, just like you and I stand as sinners before God, there is no hope in our work of righteousness, no hope in the things that we do. And when we trust and place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, number one, the blood of Jesus washes our sins away, but we're still in big trouble. It may be our sins are washed off the account, but you're not going to heaven and I'm not going to heaven unless there's righteousness on that account. And the problem is after he washes my sins away, I don't have any righteousness to put on that account. So the great story of salvation is two-sided. One side says the blood of Jesus cleanseth us from all sins. Then the Bible says that the righteousness of Christ is imputed to our account. The reason that one day I'll be in heaven, my sins washed away, it's not because of works that I have done. It is because of the absolute perfect, pure righteousness of Jesus Christ that by the mercies of God has been placed on my account. And it's not just his righteousness that saved me. It saved Abraham, Noah, Daniel, and David. And now Daniel spends his life turning people to the righteousness of Christ. And, oh, by the way, when you read the book of Daniel, there are plenty of occasions where Daniel has a personal meeting with the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you think he was in the den of lions all by himself, you better read that again. Daniel knows Christ. Daniel testifies of Christ so that an unsaved Nebuchadnezzar could look into that fire and say there are four men walking around in that fire and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. What a story. What a moment in time. Three young men stand up and say, if it costs us our life, no matter the price we pay, no matter the cost, no matter where it takes us, we would rather go to a burning, fiery furnace and be faithful to our Savior than live today and make it through another one. We would rather honor our God with our lives, whether we live or whether we die. Like the saints in the tribulation, they love not their lives unto the death. Here's the story of three men that say, no matter the cost, our lives for our God. What a testimony for you and for me. So it really becomes an amazing story in the Bible, doesn't it? We watch these young men stand up and say, the Bible says thou shalt not bow down to that graven image. So no matter the price, we're going to obey the word of God. No matter the cost, no matter how burning and fiery that furnace is, no matter how hot those flames, no matter how black that smoke, no matter the price, no matter the pain, no matter the cost, whether we live or whether we die, it is our lives for the one who loved us. And you and I have been handed on a silver platter an amazing testimony of what it means to bear your cross and give your life to him. And so you come to the end of Daniel chapter 3 and, and it's ready to, to put the chapter to bed for the night. But there's this one more thing, isn't there? And perhaps you've never thought much about it. And I don't know if all the, many people do. And, and yet I will promise you our our friends, the scholars, they discuss these things. And when you come to the end of the book of Daniel, whether it's a big problem for you, it's a big problem for some, there's this, this question that kind of just hangs through the whole chapter. The question is, where's Daniel? 
And, and it really is kind of legitimate because Daniel's everywhere in chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12. Everywhere you look, there's Daniel. But all of a sudden, in this incredibly important moment in time, there's no Daniel. And you know, the question, where's Daniel, maybe never, never bothers you, but there's a lot of people that think about this stuff. And, and I mean, everybody's got their opinion. You know, Daniel was on a business trip. Daniel was sick. Daniel was this. Daniel was that. However, you're in chapel on the right day because, believe it or not, I have the answer to the question, where's Daniel? It is not a possible answer. It is not a, it could be answered. No, no, no. This is the definitive, the accurate, the one and the only answer to the question, where is Daniel? So, you know, if you're taking notes, you might want to get this. Where's Daniel? The answer is, I don't know. (laughs) Number two, Brother Mitchell doesn't know. Number three, you don't know. And you know how I know that I don't know and Brother Mitchell doesn't know and you don't know is because the Bible doesn't say so. So people can argue and debate these things to the end of their days. Where's Daniel? Where's Daniel? Where's Daniel? And the only answer is the Bible doesn't say. And I I don't understand, and this particularly works in Revelation. I don't understand why we worry so much about what the Bible doesn't say when we ought to be worrying about what it does say. But having said that, the question, where's Daniel, raises an important point. And there is something to this. You remember that classic verse in Daniel 1.8? The boys, teenagers now, maybe 13, some guess it. They've been kidnapped out of Jerusalem. They are princes. There is royal blood in their body. And one day the soldiers of Babylon are pounding on the door. Get your toothbrush, boys. You're out of here. And, you know, when those boys arrive in Babylon, they have got to be thinking it is over. I mean, if it's true that in Habakkuk, the Bible says when the Babylonians would take their captives, they would stick a hook right through their cheeks and they would make them walk all the way to Babylon. And, and if they had done that to these boys, man, it would have been brutal. And the first thing that happens when they get there, let's just say you're never going to get married and you're never going to have kids. And so now these boys have been called into this conference, you know, and they're sitting there thinking they're going to make a slave labor. This is going to be horrible. And and yet here comes the representative of the mightiest man in the world. He says, boys, number one, you get a free ride to our University of Babylon. Number two, you're going to get new names. We don't like names that honor Jehovah here. And then number three, from this point on, you get to eat at the king's table, which means that you get to eat from the finest chefs in the world and you get to drink the king's booze. Now, Daniel's ready to pick a hill to die on. Have you ever thought this through? Because I spent a lot of time in this. What would I do? I mean, can you imagine being kidnapped by the Canadian Royal Mounted Police? <laughs> they drag you into the middle of Alberta, and they say, you're going you're gonna to worship our pagan gods. You're going to worship Buddha. I, got to, I wouldn't be too excited about that. And, and can you imagine if they said, we don't like your name. We're going to change your name and give you a pagan name. I wouldn't get too excited about that. Now, if they say, from here on out, you've got to eat the fried shrimp and the baby back ribs... Here am I, send me, okay? You, you got to do something for the Lord, so I'm happy to do that one. But, but I got to tell you, I'm thinking, this year, where am I going to draw the line? And the last place I'm going to draw the line, I'm not going to touch the booze, but the last place I'm going to draw the line is the finest chefs in the world are creating these meals. And, and Daniel never gets worked up about the scholarship, and he doesn't seem to get worked up over the name change, and they must have hated both of those things. But Daniel, and he was very gracious, wasn't he? respectful. I mean, he's not screaming and very respectful now. I cannot eat that food. I cannot drink that wine. Why? 
And you know, the only thing I can come up with, and, and I know people, it's common to come along and say, mm, the meat was offered unto idols. But the Bible never says that. And if the meat was offered to idols, the pulse would have been offered to idols. It doesn't work for me. So there has to be another reason. And the only thing that I can find is there is no verse in Daniel's Bible that says, thou shalt not go to that school. There is no verse in Daniel's Bible that says, thou shalt not take a name change. But there are chapters that tell a Jewish boy what to eat, more importantly, what not to eat. Daniel makes a Bible choice. And you know that word, Daniel purposed. It's critical for two reasons. This is why I wish I listened in English class. It's critical for two reasons. Reason number one, because it's in the past tense. That's very obvious to us. In other words, as they are pouring the wine into the glass and as they are dishing up the shrimp, Daniel's not trying to figure out what to do. He already made that choice. That's why if this semester goes by at this college or for the high school kids, if this year goes by and you haven't made spiritual choices, you have made disastrous choices. This is the time right now. I am not going to defile myself. I am not going to drink that booze. I'm not going to do those drugs. I'm not going to go to that party. I'm not going to do it because one day when there's a lot of worldly friends and the pressure is on and, and you got a job somewhere and it's a Christmas party. One day there's going to be a lot of pressure. It's a lot easier if you say, you know, one day at chapel, at high school or college, I got on my knees and made my choice that I would not defile myself. Past tense. But here's the other thing. That word purposed, we can see the past tense in our English language, but in our English language there's one thing we can't do, but many languages can. That verb is a singular verb meaning that Daniel purposed by himself. When you read it carefully, Daniel said, I have already decided I cannot eat that food, I cannot drink that booze. And in Daniel 1, after Daniel decides, three young men, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azar, we're with you, Daniel, we're not going to do it either. In Daniel 1, three men follow the testimony of Daniel. And I'm not criticizing that, that's a great thing. But now we come to Daniel 3 and the big question, where's Daniel? Uh, I don't know what he's doing, but the bigger issue is, fellas, Daniel's not here to show you what to do. So now you're going to have to figure it out on your own. You know, back there in chapter 1, you had Daniel's God. You made Daniel's choice. You made Daniel's convictions. And not that those were bad because they certainly got it right. None of the other princes did. But now there's no Daniel to show you how to do it. Just like if you're in high school, one day... You got a mom, a dad that love you. You're in a church that loves you. You got a pastor that loves you. Teachers here today that, that, that love you, they care for you. And, and one day your mom's not there. Your daddy's not there. Pastor Mitchell's not there. Your teachers aren't. One day you're going to have to either be real or not. One day you're going to have to make your own choice. In these three sections, four sections in the middle right now, they have come to the place where they're making their own choice. And just because in the middle here, these men and ladies have grown up in a Christian family taught by a wonderful pastor with good moms and dads, that's because they know what they're supposed to do doesn't mean down here in their want to, they're going to do what they're supposed to do. So now you go to college and these guys are making some choices. Is it pastor's convictions? Is it mommy's convictions and daddy's convictions or are these my convictions? In Daniel chapter 1, they had a great example. In Daniel chapter 3, 
that example is gone. One day, every man and lady in this room, the pressure is going to be on every single one to commit some wicked sin. The friends are doing this. The crowd is going this way. Everybody does it. The intensity and the pressure is enormous. And on that day, the real you is coming out. When the real Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah came out, 2,500 years later, we're still talking about it. Where's Daniel? Well, this chapter is for Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah to figure out, are we following Daniel or are we following God? Did they ever get it right? There's one more reason you could ask, where's Daniel? I guess maybe it'd be illustrated best in the late 1800s. There was a 24-year-old pharmacist named Charles Miles. Charles Miles spent his life in education, learning how to be a pharmacist, and, and now he had a tremendous career sitting in front of him. It was all that he ever wanted. And yet one day in a revival meeting, the Lord got a hold of the heart of Charles Miles, and he knew that God wanted him to serve the Lord. A 24-year-old spent his years preparing for this day. He finally has his pharmacy. He finally has his business, money, and everything he wanted. And one day he got down on his knees and said, Lord, whatever you want me to do. He gave up his career to serve the Lord. And, and years later, he was to look back and say, you know, I thought the Lord was going to call me to be a missionary. I thought the Lord was going to call me to pastor. I thought the Lord wanted me to preach. But he said the Lord had something else for me. And, and next time you check your songbook, you'll find his name next to songs like A New Name Written Down in Glory and Dwelling in Beulah Land. He, he wrote songs that we're still singing a century later. But you know, maybe his favorite song and, and perhaps the song that was his testimony went like this. It may be in the valley where countless dangers hide. It may be in the sunshine where I in peace abide. But this one thing I know, if it be dark or fair, if Jesus goes with me, I'll go anywhere. It may be I must carry the blessed word of life across the burning desert to those in sinful strife. And though it be my lot to bear my colors there, if Jesus goes with me, I'll go anywhere but if it be my portion to bear the cross at home, while others bear their burden beyond the billow's foam, I'll prove my faith in him, confess his judgments fair. If Jesus stays with me, I'll stay any... Well, they don't write it like this anymore. Sorry. It is not mine to question the judgment of the Lord. It is but mine to follow the leadings of his word. So if I go or stay or whether here or there, I'll be with my Savior content anywhere. And he wrote the chorus... If Jesus goes with me, I'll go anywhere. It's heaven for me, where'er I may be, if he is there. I count it a privilege here, his cross to bear. If Jesus goes with me, I'll go anywhere. So where's Daniel? Where's Daniel? Well, if Jesus goes with Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah to the fire, who needs Daniel? Father in heaven, I pray that your word would do something great and mighty for each one of us. And, and Lord, I look at men and ladies in this room with a lifetime in front of them, incredibly important choices to make, choices that one day they will look back and smile upon or choices that they didn't make that one day they wish they had. 
And Lord, I pray that you would help them understand that the Jesus who went with three boys into the burning, fiery furnace said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. And would you find in this place people that even today who will purpose right here ahead of time that they will not defile themselves. Would you find that one that would stand up and say, if no one joins me, I have made my choice to live for the will of God. Would you find that man, that lady who says, my life for God's will. I give you them in Jesus' great name. Would you stand together with me and